Heavenly Father, we pray that you will speak to our hearts today, that you will speak through your word, um, through these words that I trust you have given me, that you will open all of our ears, minds, and hearts to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Bernice reminded us, it is Lent. We are a few days into Lent, which started on Wednesday. And I'm wondering how many people know why Lent is a thing. What is it commemorating? Yes, Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And we place it in the church year right before Easter. Um, the two th things didn't happen immediately one after the other in Jesus' life. But, they, but the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness helps us to, if we focus on that, it helps us to also focus on the sacrifices that Jesus made um, for us. And so a lot of times Christians will practice a particular discipline, decide on a particular discipline during Lent. Bernice told us about hers, um, which is really appropriate thinking about Jesus 40 days in the wilderness when he said he gave up food for 40 days and he said to the devil who tempted him there, people can't live on bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So increasing your Bible reading during Lent is a really great discipline. A lot of times people give up things for Lent, and that is actually also a good way to practice this because it is an exercise. We're not, when we give up things for Lent, we're not saying this thing is bad and I'm punishing myself for I'm punishing myself for liking this thing, and so I'm going to give it up for 40 days. That's not why we give up things for Lent. We give up things, good things for Lent, like Jesus gave up food for 40 days. He, he ate again after those 40 days. Uh, but we give up the good things to remind us of the best thing. Jesus is the best thing. And what Jesus did for us is the best thing. And so Lent is kind of, Lent is a series of days of preparation for Easter, just like Advent is a series of days of preparation for Christmas, where we focus on or refocus our minds and our hearts on Jesus Christ and contemplate the sacrifice in each case that leads to celebration. So what exactly was Jesus' sacrifice? Taking on everyone's sins. Okay, so, right, at, at the incarnation, at Christmas time, Jesus sacrificed his right to his divinity. He was still God, but in Philippians 2, it says that he sacrificed his right to equality with God and made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And then that same chapter goes on and says, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And somehow, as Barbara said, that has something to do with our sins. But, but what? <laughs> how, does, how does this help us? How does the fact that Jesus became obedient to death on a cross actually do anything?
okay, God is just and someone had to pay for our sins and needed someone sinless to take it on. And that is true. It's a little, it, it gets a little complicated. It's kind of hard to um, unpack that in a way that makes a ton of sense if we, without a ton of time to unpack that. But somehow, Jesus sacrificed his life, his rights to his divinity, and his life at Passover, and somehow that does something to our sin and our relationship with God. The short answer of how is a word, atonement. And you maybe have heard the word atonement before. You may not know that it's actually a really old word that was, at the time, a made-up word. It is a compound word, at one meant. I used to think that was just a cute way of explaining what it meant, but that's actually how it formed. <laughs> um, people were trying to describe this sort of unity that happens with forgiveness and um, justice and, the, and restitution, and they, they put those words together, at one meant. So atonement is a condition of being at one, and when we talk about it in terms of God, it's a condition of being at one with God. Somehow, the fact of the Son of God's becoming human, dying on a cross, and coming fully back to life about three days later makes it possible for our relationship with God to be restored, and then from there, our relationship with everything else to be restored. Throughout Christian history, though, there have been different interpretations of how exactly it is that Jesus' death makes us at one with God. And so Ron gave us one interpretation of this. Um, we're not going to go into all the different theories of atonement here because we don't need to. We're going to focus on we're going to focus on the Bible text specifically. But it is kind of interesting, and if you if you are interested in it. I recommend going online and Googling Bonnie Christian, Christian with a K, four competing theories of atonement. If you want understandings of how it is that Jesus' sacrifice makes us at one with God. And all of the theories agree that the problem is that somehow human sin gets between us and God. But they don't all agree how Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection fixes it. We're not going to solve that whole challenge here, but it's important to know that there are different views on this and kind of different angles to, to get at it. And we are going to do, over the, the season of Lent, we are going to do a little light kind of detective work in the Old Testament to see what insights the Old Testament gives us on how the atonement works. The Old Testament is the origin story for both, for the people of God, both the Jewish people and Christians. Um, if you, like, you already know that Paul and I like to watch superhero movies and science fiction movies, and a lot of times when you have a superhero that, you know, they have the the movie about the things that the superhero did, and then after they they want to make some more money on this character, so they, they go back and they tell you the origin story of this person. 
Where did this person come from? How did they get their powers? What, how did this happen? Well, the Old Testament is our origin story. The Old Testament is what the New Testament, what makes the New Testament make sense. But for a couple of different reasons we won't go into right now, Christians often start with the New Testament, and without the background of the Old Testament, we interpret it through our westernized, um, actually Greek-influenced, from the first century, Greek-influenced worldview, this lens. We look at the New Testament through this Greek worldview, and we let that interpretation influence how we read the Old Testament if we read the Old Testament. But in fact, the Old Testament is the starting point. We should be reading the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament. Those are the, both parts of the whole Word of God. So, it's important to keep this in mind. Jesus was Jewish, and he told his followers that he didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. The Old Testament is actually the key to understanding what Jesus came to do. And so we're, this is the first Sunday of Lent, and this is our first Sunday in our new sermon series called What Did Jesus Do? Contemplating the Sacrifice. And we're going to look at some of the earliest Old Testament stories about sacrifice and see what they might show us about how much, first of all, about how much God loves us, and also how much it, Jesus really did for us on the cross. A couple disclaimers before we get into this. I'm not Jewish. I don't know Hebrew. And even though I think I probably got a more thorough education in the Old Testament as a kid than a lot of Christians that I know, um, probably based on my parents and my school. I still grew up in a Western, ancient Greek-influenced church like probably everybody here. All of us, whether we know about it or not, our, um, our framework in this country, in Christianity, has a lot of Greek influence more than the Jewish influence. And because of that, we're going to have some blind spots. I'm going to have some blind spots, so I'm not going to be able to unpack the Old Testament as well as, say, my sister-in-law, who has a PhD in the Hebrew Bible, or my friend Wendy, who teaches Bible classes. But if we're worshiping God in the spirit and in truth, like we talked about for six weeks before this, we are going to keep learning about the atonement for the rest of our lives, and God is going to keep illuminating his word to us. Because the Bible, the whole Bible, is the word of God for everybody. And as we dig into it together, with his spirit guiding us, he will show us what he wants us to see in this. And so I suspect that over the course of this series, all of us, including me, I'm also learning, we're all going to be able to contemplate, maybe in some different ways, and have a deeper appreciation of the cross than we have had before. So we're going to look at some different examples of sacrifices, and we'll see what we can learn together, not about 
what Jesus would do, but what Jesus did do. And today we're starting with the covenant with Abraham. So Barb gave, gave us a really good um, intro to the concept of covenant when she was telling us about promises. Promises, you can make, you can make a promise and not intend to keep it, or you can make a promise and intend to keep it and not be very good at keeping it, or you can make a promise and be true to your word, or you can make a covenant. A covenant is more similar to like the car loan that she was telling us about. Um, it is. It has some legal implications. It's really serious if you break this covenant. And the two parts of our Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, would actually be more accurately called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, God made some promises to a group of people that he put him, his name on the line for. And in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there's a focus on a series of covenants throughout the, the whole Old Testament story. There's Noah, there's Abraham, there's Moses, there's David. But you could actually say that they are added layers onto the same one covenant. When we get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah tells us that God is planning to institute a new covenant, and that's the one that we have through Jesus. But it's important to know about the, the old covenant so that we can understand the new one. Um, and Noah's, the covenant with Noah was for all humanity. And then with Abraham, God narrows it down to one family, which he's going to make into a people, which is then going to bless all humanity again. Um, so we're gonna we're not gonna focus on all the different layers of the covenant, but just this part with Abraham because this is where the specific covenant to bless the world, to bring it back to how God created and intended it to be in the first place. This is where it starts. In actually in Genesis 12, which we didn't read today, God first calls Abraham and makes this promise. He says, "I will make you." into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God made this promise to Abraham. He calls Abraham out of the place that he was born and grew up and lived and says, go over here, and over here I'm going to give you this other land, to your descendants, and somehow through that I'm going to bless all nations. He makes the promise before Abraham goes to Canaan, and Abraham goes there. But by the time we get to chapter 15, which Bernice read for us, there's been a whole bunch of other stuff that happened between that call and what's happening in chapter 15. Abraham has just, he's in Canaan now, he has just, in chapter 14, rescued his nephew Lot, and a bunch of city leaders from captivity, and he's turned down a reward that the king of Sodom, who he also rescued, um, offered him because Abraham didn't want the king of Sodom to get any credit for Abraham's destiny. But different commentators observe that, as often happens after a victory, even in the Bible, maybe especially in the Bible, Abraham is maybe a little bit discouraged 
And there might be some reasons for this. Abraham followed God's call. He went to Canaan. And then there was a famine. So he went to Egypt. And some sketchy stuff happened there. And it kind of seems like that's the last time Abraham really hears directly from God. He goes back to... And, and so it's, it's not a great interaction. He goes back to Canaan. His nephew Lot has too many sheep to, to be on the same land as Abraham because he's got all these sheep and, and cattle too. And so they split up, and Abraham's just kind of trying to do things, and he knows that God made this promise to him, but he still doesn't have a son, and he still doesn't own any of this land. And he just was in a fight, and he turned down a decent amount of wealth, and he's probably wondering if that was a good idea, because he hasn't heard from God in a while, as far as we can tell. So this could be kind of discouraging. He's trying to do the right thing, he's trying to follow God, he's trying to be obedient, and where, and where is God in all this, and where is the promise? So, after who knows how long... It's actually very poignant, these first words that God says to him in chapter 15. He says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great. He may have been afraid. He just defeated some powerful kings, but he's in a land that doesn't actually belong to him yet. And what if these kings come back, or their followers? And where is God? God is reminding him that God is Abraham's protection. God is his shield. God, God's got him. And even though Abraham still doesn't own any of this land and turned down the bounty that was offered him by the king of Sodom, God is not only the shield, but he's also the reward. In this reopening of this relationship, God is giving Abraham himself. So how many of you ever, when you... You send a, it's tough now because communications can happen so fast. You send a text to somebody and it's kind of important or your relationship with that person is kind of important and they don't answer you right away and you get a little anxious. Has that ever happened <laughs> to anybody? Yeah. So it's definitely happened to me. And so it kind of feels like maybe Abraham's feeling a little bit this way. You know, things didn't and so well in Egypt, and now he's, he, he hasn't really heard from God, and so God says, I'm your shield, don't be afraid, I'm your shield, I'm your great reward. And, and Abraham pushes back a little bit, because he's like, well, I mean, okay, but sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, you have given me no children. Great, you're my shield and my reward, but what in the world is the point? of shielding me and rewarding me if I don't have any kids to pass this on to. You promised, right? You might be my shield. You might be my reward. But how are you going to be my heir? That's what I really care about here. He's going back to the call and the promise. He's sort of saying, okay, I'm, I'm, 
I'm calling you out, God. This is your word. You said this to me. Where is it? But here's the thing. God himself is the fulfillment of his promises. All of his promises. And it's so interesting. God is Abraham's shield. God is Abraham's reward. Abraham says, what can you give me since I don't have a son? In fact, millennia later, God himself is going to be the descendant of Abraham who fulfills the promise and blesses the whole earth. Right? It's a little mind-blowing. Abraham doesn't know that. He doesn't actually need to know that at this point. All he needs to know is that God is going to give him a real, literal son of his own. Not a servant, but a son to carry on, to inherit not only the promise, not only the call, but the blessing, and to be part of the blessing. So when Abraham says, all I have is a servant who's going to inherit everything, God says, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Look up at the sky and count the stars, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. The Apostle Paul quotes it a number of times in his letters. Abram believed the Lord, and he, created, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is so important. All Abraham had to do here was trust. Just trust God's word, God's promise. And we're going to see in a minute that it's not even necessarily belief. It's not perfect belief. Because in a minute, <laughs> he's going to ask him about the land. He's got an answer about the son, and he believes that. He trusts it now. But he's still not sure about the land. This is where the story gets weird. Abraham still, he believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. But he wants some kind of assurance still that all this stuff that God has promised is actually going to happen specifically now that he really is going to inherit this land that he has given everything to move to and actually spent some time fighting to maintain. So, in answer, God says, go get a bunch of animals, kill them, cut them up. It's a little strange, right? He, he, he kills them. He makes like a corridor between the pieces of animals. It's weird and gross, and I just, I know that we have at least one vegan in this congregation, and so I want to say right now, we should someday, maybe not from here, but in a Bible study or something, have a conversation about um, God and animals, and that animal life is important. Um, but the fact is, the Old Testament is full of sacrifices, and they're all, and they're animal sacrifices, they're not all animal sacrifices, but they are animal sacrifices, and that is part of the, the imagery that leads us to the cross of Jesus, and so it's important. So we are going to be talking about killing animals kind of a lot over the next couple of weeks. This is probably the grisliest 
because it's not even, you're not even offering an animal up on an altar. They're just these pieces of animals cut up. It's weird and gross. And if we don't know a little bit about the, the history and the culture of the people in that part of the world at that time, it makes zero sense. But here's the thing. Somehow, they didn't have, you know, paper, readily accessible paper, and the kinds of money that we, they didn't have a capitalistic society. And so the way that people would draw up contracts in the ancient Near East, and this isn't just an Abraham thing, this is like all of the people in that area, if they were going to draw up a legal contract, an agreement before, between, say, a king and another leader or something like that, they would sacrifice animals, they would cut them up, and both parties would walk between them, signifying, if I break my side of this promise, may I be like these animals right here. May this happen to me. Covenants are a big deal in the Old Testament. This isn't just the bank's going to take your house. This is like, if I break this, I'm, I deserve to die. Not just die, but die a really horrible, gruesome death. Like these animals right here. And so the actual term for making a covenant in the Old Testament is cutting a covenant. For obvious reasons. So, Abraham actually understands what God is asking him to do. He asks God for some certainty about this promise that God made. And so God's like, okay, let's draw this up as a legal covenant. Go get some animals. So he gets the animals. And then he, they're all set up and he's ready. But God has to show up. So he's waiting. And he's waiting. And while he's waiting, birds of prey notice these dead animals just lying there. And that kind of makes sense. Why wouldn't they? And so they start to fly down. They're interested in these carcasses. And so Abraham beats them off. I think we can draw a little bit of spiritual parallel from this. Um, the enemy does not want God's word to stand. The enemy does not want God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done. The enemy does not want Abraham's faith to grow. doesn't want the covenant to be cut doesn't want the world to be blessed, doesn't want us to live in the reality that God destined us for. And so these birds kind of symbolize the enemy coming in and trying to mess it all up. There are different ways that we can respond to spiritual warfare like this. We can say, well, I guess I must have heard God wrong. I guess this isn't really what I was supposed to be doing. Why am I sitting here with these dead animals? This is weird. Let the birds have them. Or we can say, God made a promise. God is true to his promise. I am going to do what I can do here until God shows up. And that's what Abraham does. He doesn't sit idly by, even though he's not fully certain about everything. He doesn't sit idly by. He beats off the opposition while waiting for God to show up. And while he's waiting, after that, he goes into some kind of trance. It's weird. It's dark. And, and one of the translations says, uh, 
darkness and a horror descended on him. And I think these two things go along with, God gives him some kind of bad news. He says, you're going to have some descendants, and they're going to be strangers in a strange land, and they're going to be persecuted for 400 years. But then I'm going to bring them out, and they're going to inherit this land. But here's the thing about the bad news. The bad news also speaks to the good news. Because it means that Abraham's descendants will exist. He's actually going to have some. And if they're going to carry on for 400 years in a strange land, Abraham's descendants are going to grow, and they're going to exist for 400 years. And then on the other side of that horrifying darkness of slavery, they will come out with great possessions. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So there is a long delay before Abraham's descendants will get to possess the land. But they will possess it. And so then the covenant is cut. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made or cut a covenant with Abraham. What do you notice that's different about this covenant cutting than what I just described to you a few minutes ago? Only God goes through. Yes. Only God passes through the pieces. Abraham doesn't. God is making a covenant where he himself is responsible for both sides. If he's unfaithful, he's saying, if I, God is saying, if I am unfaithful, may I be cut up like the animals in the sacrifice. But that isn't going to happen. We know that because God is faithful. He is not, was not, and never will be unfaithful. He's also saying, Abraham, if you and your descendants, both his biological descendants and spiritual descendants, are unfaithful, God says, may I be like these cut-up animals in the sacrifice. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6 say, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our, trans for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. This is good news. This is amazing news. We have been faithful, faithless. All of us have been faithless. Abraham was faithless. Abraham's descendants were faithless. And Jesus, God with us, God in the flesh, allowed himself to be made like those cut-up animals all the way back in Genesis 15. And yet, by Jesus' grace, by his taking on, fulfilling this promise, this covenant, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Jesus' faithfulness was given to Abraham. And Jesus' faithfulness can be given to us. And it's not pretend. It's real. It's real righteousness. It's real faithfulness. 
When we believe God, when we trust God, who put his own life on the line, he basically signed on the dotted line of this covenant with his life to prove that he would keep his promise, Jesus' righteousness is credited to us too. The terms of the covenant have been fulfilled by God in his son, Jesus Christ. All we have to do is trust him. That is one way to look at how Jesus' death makes us at one with God. Lord, thank you for fulfilling your covenant. Thank you that you make promises, and they are never empty promises, and that you honor us, even if even though we don't deserve it, by putting your life on the line to honor those promises, to keep the covenant that you drew up with Abraham and with his descendants, which includes us. Help us to live as faithful people, trusting in your sacrifice, in Jesus' name.